you are listening to Single Sirs. My name is Arno Martire, and I am your host. Single Serve is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio. Tour Cousins Wilson is a co-founder of the Studio of Contemporary Architecture, where he and partner Shane Leptist are involved in both speculative and real projects that aim at creating a positive impact through innovative, high-quality designs. Their designs and ideas have been extensively published and acknowledged. Tour, thank you very much for being on the show and indulging in my uh, city-building obsession. It's a real pleasure to welcome you as a guest. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So today we're discussing yet another time Toronto's chronically undersupplied housing stock. But this time we're looking at the idea of reviving social housing through conservation and what it means for a city like Toronto. Uh, so before we jump right into the topic, can you tell us who you are and what you do in your own words in three sentences or less? Yes, uh, simply I'm an architect born and raised in Toronto, Ontario. Currently working at the Studio of Contemporary Architecture, which I co-founded as with Shane Laptis, as you mentioned. And we're doing work that spans a variety of scales, um, including private residential renovations and additions to community work, to sports and recreation facilities, as well as urban design master planning and speculative work. And the speculative work spans a broad range of scales and our interest in speculative work is about you know, the creative process. It's about um, asking questions, exploring ideas that we can't always explore in built work. So with uh, professional projects or with uh, real clients, for example. And some of those projects are actually very interesting. I'm thinking about the um, the renovation of that brutalist uh, theater. I forget the name. Yeah, the St. Lawrence Center for the Performing Arts. So I understand you do those as speculative projects, but do they actually lead to work or have they led to like interesting conversations? Some have led to work. They definitely, in my opinion, lead to conversations. That was part of a Globe and Mail article questioning really what we see as heritage, um, particularly what we see. Do we see brutalist architecture as heritage? Um, there was a current proposal Um, that was looking at demolishing that. And it was a bit of a counter-proposal that, you know, that said, hey, we see value in this building. Mm. We think you can do something bold here that has its own identity while also, you know, acknowledging the 50 years of the site. And so I understand this may not have been the primary purpose of that counter-proposal, but has that changed the um, uh, goals of the building owners at all? It Actually, I think it has. Um, I just recently saw they're going to be looking at doing a feasibility study. And one of the things identified was working with the existing building. And I think largely that's partially from a budgetary perspective. But I also think it's greater acknowledgement of the value and the history of the site and the culture 
of that site. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. So uh, let's go back to the topic of social housing in uh, in the context of Toronto. So Toronto has a housing problem that's undeniable. And I, I have does, my own yes. ideas as why that is. But what is it in your opinion? It's, <laughs> that's a challenging question. I think there's, there's no one answer. I think simply put, we're not building enough housing for the amount of people coming to the city. And that's all different types of, of housing. So that's market housing. Um, it's missing middle. So duplexes, triplexes, small walk-up apartments. It's even high-rise residential, even though it seems like we're building a lot, we could be building a lot more. And most importantly, when it comes to super deep affordable housing is social housing. So that's government-funded housing. We're not nearly building enough, a drop in the bucket. Um, if that can answer the question a bit, it, it's, it's, it's challenging. You know, it's more than just supply. It's, you know, our market is driven by a market. So, you know, interest rates involve supply, mm -hmm. demand, um, cost of construction materials, cost of labor, a shortage of labor. All those things contribute to the inflated housing market. I personally think that a large part of the blame is on a politician refusing to change the regulatory environment, make it easier to build more dense environments. Um, how yeah, much do you definitely. think that impacts impacts the whole situation? I, I think that's that's a big part. Of, you know, as I was saying, um, you know, the question of missing middle, small um, walk ups in similar scale to a single family home, but have multiple units in roughly the, the same size. Uh, you've probably have heard, and I think maybe a lot of listeners may have heard. Um, of the Yellow Belt, mm -hmm. particularly that's a large region of residential neighborhoods in Toronto that where you can't build anything else other than a single family home. And when the largest area of land can only be put to one use, that limits the amount of housing that you can build. Yeah, that's simple arithmetic, right? Mm -hmm. um, so how does that those broad ranging societal issues uh, relate to social housing and its preservation? The they do and they don't. So the, the missing middle in, in general doesn't necessarily have to relate to social housing, although you can have social housing that is um, missing middle or at, at a smaller scale. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, TCHC, Toronto Community Housing, they have um, part of their portfolio is missing middle houses, so duplex, triplexes, in addition to their larger buildings. Mm -hmm. If that... Yeah, that makes yeah, sense. That makes sense, um, yeah. So let's talk about heritage, because mm -hmm. that's, that's that was the topic. Like, what is, uh, what is your definition of heritage? And in, in, uh, I think it, because you just had a talk at IDS, mm -hmm. you were talking about reviving social housing as heritage buildings instead of uh, mm -hmm. demolishing them. So what is what has been the extent of your work? What are you advocating for? And, and more importantly, what are the uh, roadblocks that you're up against that maybe prevent you from doing that or, or prevent your proposals from becoming reality? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And the question of heritage has been an interest of our studio for some time now and you know asking what makes the city 
the city and in the case Toronto, what makes Toronto Toronto that we are, you know, worth saying, you know, this is what defines us. And I think in a lot of cases, um, Victorian era, neoclassical architecture, early 20th century industrial architecture is considered, you know, part of the ethos and character of the city. I would argue less so, although it, it is changing. Um, there has been, but more, more, and it has been changing more recently. I would argue that mid-century architecture, um, whether it be just modernism, brutalism, high-tech architecture, doesn't have that same broader value. And I think there's, there's niches of certain architects who appreciate it, but less so from a broader cultural perspective. Um, and I'd say the interesting thing is so much of our city is made up of those post-war years. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, I would say Toronto came of age um, after the Second World War, demographically, definitely in the, the scale, the, the way the city boomed. And culturally, it transitioned from a very white Anglo-Saxon Protestant city to a much more diverse and continually more mm -hmm. diverse city. Mm -hmm. and the, the question then becomes, is that era architecture have value? And we, I would suggest that it does. Um, and in the talk today at IDS was looking at, specifically at Alexandra Park, mm -hmm. um, an 18 acre site uh, just west of the downtown core. That, that says Spadina and Dundas, right? Yeah, Spadina yeah. and Dundas. So mm -hmm. just west of Chinatown, south of Kensington Market, and then north of Queen, and east of Bathurst Street. It was undergoing a um, large-scale redevelopment master plan, mm -hmm. much, very much similar to Regent Park, well underway. It started in 2014. That is seeing the existing um, site that was uh, um, designed by Jerome Marks in a really interesting uh, arch Toronto architect demolished to make way for a new development. So, mm -hmm. and a mix of use. The idea being that um, you have a market and market units that uh, finance the replacement of social housing mm -hmm. units, below market units. Yeah. Um, and it started with an article that I wrote in Azure questioning the approach to tabula rasa of tearing it down to create a clean slate. Is that the best approach mm -hmm. from a cultural sense, a cultural memory of our identity to place from an environmental standpoint of there's a lot of embodied carbon and energy mm -hmm. in existing buildings. Yeah. Why landfill them unnecessarily? Yeah. And the most sustainable buildings mm -hmm. are one you don't build, right? Exactly. And additionally, from an environmental perspective and not even architecture was the destruction of trees. Mm -hmm. So there was quite an extensive canopy of mature trees that are 60 plus years old mm -hmm. that replacing them, which is what they'll do, will take another 60 years, yeah. you know, another two generations mm -hmm. of children really not having mature trees. So it was, it was questioning that approach and it's a, an approach that was taken, a similar approach that was taken in phase one of Regent Park. And there's new elements happening elsewhere in the city and across the country of what do we do? How do we restore and regenerate these sites? Um, and not to say at all that there aren't shortcomings with them. There aren't design shortcomings, but to say maybe there's a more nuanced approach. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you had a, I believe you had a speculative proposal for that site too. Mm -hmm. what, what did you, what conclusion did you come to by, by designing this speculative project? 
the conclusion was simply that, and it was almost, I'm going to back up a bit there. We treated it almost as a lab research project of mm -hmm. questioning why not, why do we tear this down? Can there be a more nuanced approach? And was testing whether there could be a more nuanced approach through a design exercise that literally looked at the site and said, these are the existing buildings. What is the value to them? Mm -hmm. So it was identifying value. It was identifying buildings that, you know, were very easy to keep. And then, you know, there were certain buildings that were challenging to keep. And, you know, how could we keep them? And then where would we say add new density? So the, the idea was to, to follow the model. And I, I think it's a debate on, you know, our approach to social housing that we require um, the private sector to finance it. I think that's a, s a separate debate. Um, so, but we did follow that model um, to keep in relation to the existing master plan. And it's finding areas to add new density that wouldn't impact the existing structures as much as possible. So largely looking at parking, empty parking lots, so surface grade parking lots, mm -hmm. and adding a lot of density. And it was, I think, challenging the idea that Toronto can't have high amounts of density. So if we kept, you know, a two-story townhouse to have a consistent density might mean that we need a 30-story point tower right beside it. Mm -hmm. And I think in, in this city, if we are going to have a conversation about heritage, it's about the duality. It, it's not about preserving something, some archaic uh, vision or notion of the past, but allowing the city to, to renew itself while at the same time still being respectful of the past. And I think building from the past that adds value. And I think one of, you know, one of the critiques of so much um, residential architecture is that it's generic and soulless. And part of the argument was an easy way of creating character is, is working with, with existing buildings. I think even good architecture requires time to develop its own sense of identity and character and broader meaning. Yeah, and I think this brings up a, a couple of interesting points. One is that uh, not all architecture is worth preserving. And I remember Alexander Park because I used to live in Kensington Market, so I would go through that area quite often. Mm -hmm. And just from a, a purely empirical observation from going through at the street level, there seemed to have been a lot of architectural quality there in the way the buildings related to the streets and the pedestrian pathways, even though I realized those buildings may have been quite derelict after decades of mm -hmm. being in use. Um, so how does one determine what's worth preserving and what's not? Because I, in my opinion, smart heritage would be about preserving the things that make sense to preserve or architecturally significant, whatever that means in some way. Um, so how, how do you go about that? And how do you say, well, we can demolish that because it doesn't really have any value or it impedes the uh, adaptive reuse too much, but we need to preserve that one because it's architecturally significant and it's easier to, to renovate and reuse. It's a very challenging question and a question that's constantly evolving. I, I think a good example would be Victorian houses. Mm -hmm. There was an era in this city. Um, Regent Park is a good example. What um, predated Alexandra Park was an old street grid of Victorian houses, a, a suburb. Mm -hmm. 
an older suburb in the inner part of the city. And there was a point where those houses weren't valued, which which resulted in the creation of, you know, Regent Park. Um, that being that they're also, in, in many cases, in, in disrepair. The irony is today, Cabbage Town, which is really the north portion of, of Regent Park, mm-hmm. is valued. You, you can't get a house for under two million if you're lucky in, in that that part of the city. So I, I think it's acknowledging that our values constantly change. And part of our interest is, you know, questioning what are our values today. So I, I think I think it's challenging. I'd also like to push beyond heritage as purely being physical architecture. Using the Cabbage Town example again today, and I think it's a beautiful neighborhood. They've done a great job at preserving many of the built form qualities. However, if you were to look at the perspective of heritage from a people perspective, it's fundamentally different. Family sizes have changed. They're much smaller. And people are, families are, are much richer. Mm-hmm. They're living in bigger houses with smaller space. Um, the density is different. Um, you know, Cabbage Town in, say, the 1920s was fundamentally different from the perspective of people, even mm-hmm. though... It was it, blue color, right? Right. Yeah. Class, too. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, you know, questioning what heritage means from different perspectives from built architectural form. Because ultimately, my opinion is heritage is meaningless to a large degree if it's not used well. Um, yeah, it's about the culture as mm-hmm. well and how it fits into the culture. And, and it's interesting you mentioned the Victorian homes because there's literally thousands of them across the city. So that one question that I've had over the years, is it worth preserving all of them or should you selectively, as the uh, population pressure increases in the city, should you allow for maybe the demolition of the least significant of them and to build maybe higher density because we need to put those people somewhere too. You have to be realistic. Or is it about preserving all of them because they're old enough to trigger some kind of nostalgia in the in the culture? I think that's an interesting question too. What are your thoughts on that? It is. And I, I think it's constantly evolving. I, I don't think there's a broad brush approach. I think certain areas it might make sense and others less so. Um, there's certain Victorian houses where, you know, they weren't built that well. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's many houses in the city that are built cheaply. They were essentially workers' houses. You know, they're stick frame houses yeah. with a brick veneer facade at the front with some interesting architectural detailing. Beyond that, there's not that much special, at least from an architectural perspective, from just a standalone building. Obviously, you know, there's the scale of the street mm-hmm. and there's the potentially maybe the coherence. I think coherence is, is another one. So there's certain areas where I think in a coherent district, it, it might make sense to keep the heritage. You know, there's many areas in the city where much of the original architectural detailing has been erased. Um, and there might be one standalone building. Do you prevent any change in a whole district because there's a few buildings that still maintain that character? I would say probably not. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that's why I say, I, I think it's, it's, it's something that you can't sort of address um, entirely holistically. 
Um, I, I think it does come down to like specific neighborhoods, specific approaches, but also identifying that we are in a housing crisis and we can't just remain the same. No. So in, in your opinion, um, and maybe you can tie that back a little bit to your work on, on preserving social housing, but maybe broaden the answer to a, a more a larger architectural context. What, what would you do if you had a magic wand and you could, uh, how, what would be your fix to the, to the housing crisis? Um, there's, I, I think simply it would be investing more money in public housing. Mm -hmm. is probably the first thing that I would say. And I, I don't mean, you know, one or two billion. I, I mean a lot of money across the country for the next 10 to 20 years. Mm -hmm. It's a crisis that we're not going to get out of in the short term. It's, it's in, a, in large part, it's a generational approach. Yeah. Um, The next thing is, and I think this gets to heritage, and I think, you know, one of the critiques I talked about with Alex Park is, and, you know, even Regent Park is, we are generally okay with upending large social housing communities, mm -hmm. but we wouldn't do that, say, for Rosedale. Or the Annex. Or the Annex. And they wouldn't let you do that because mm -hmm. every time there's a condo at the end of the street, they go up in arms and say, we don't, we don't want to destroy the character of the neighborhood, whatever that means. Right. Um, so, yeah, I guess there is a point to be made about uh, your level of wealth determining how much your housing is protected, so to speak. Right, right. It's, yeah, and I think, I'm not sure how to, how to articulate it there. I, th I think it's, You know, in an ideal world, we could build housing everywhere. And it gets back to kind of the question of the yellow belt, the question of missing middle, mm -hmm. the question of scale. Um, as I mentioned previously, the ability to say, hey, it's okay to have, say, a 20-story building that backs onto a much smaller building because you want to keep that smaller building. Mm -hmm. um, And there's we, cities elsewhere where it happens all the time. In, definitely. In every neighborhood. Definitely. So, Uh, to me, what's baffling about Toronto and to an extent maybe other Canadian cities is that there's this fear that more density will destroy the character of the neighborhood. Again, whatever the hell that means, because I don't think it's a valid argument. But people fail to look at other successful cities that are way denser than Toronto and still managing to be very livable. Mm -hmm. But I think our idea of livability in Canada or North America, I guess you could say, is that you have to have a single family home with a two car parking uh, pad and maybe even a garage uh, because that's, that's what you should have if you make it in life. I guess that's a bit of an overly broad generalization, but I think there's, you know, that kind of desire to show that you've made it by owning a piece of single family property instead of Uh, in Paris, wealthy people live in apartments, you know, right. um, and there's many other cities where that's the case. So it's also, I think there's a bit of a cultural shift that needs to happen. Definitely. And it is happening. It's so I, I think, you know, the suburban house, Canadian dream, if you will, still exists. At the same time, the majority of residents in Toronto live in apartment buildings. Is that the case? Yes. And I think... And it's going to continue to be the case. Mm -hmm. I, it, it's interesting because in 
looking at the city, like walking or driving through it, you'd think there's more single family units than there are apartment units. So it's interesting to see that statistically there's more people living in apartments. Yeah. When, when you think of the space that a single family home can take up, yeah, there's, there's lots that are, you know, a hundred feet by 200 feet wide with maybe four people living in them mm -hmm. in a lot like that. That's the size of a point tower in downtown Toronto. Yeah. Yeah. So you could literally have hundreds of units mm -hmm. in, in the same space. So what are the, uh, you know, we talked about conservation and heritage and more of the cultural aspect. What are the environmental benefits of preserving uh, any architecture, but specifically social housing? The, as I, yeah, I think I was touched on previously, one, one being the embodied energy in a building. If you don't have to tear down a building, and really when you think about what you're tearing down a building is you're throwing it into a landfill. There is a huge debate and a push to remove, you know, plastic bags. Mm -hmm. Let's say what, how many billions of plastic bags does a building make up? And if you think of it from that perspective, mm -hmm. if you're demolishing a building, you're throwing out quite a few plastic bags. Yeah. So there, there's, there's that perspective, you know, there's perspective I mentioned of existing trees. So we're not talking often that we're just demolishing buildings. We're often talking about that we're demolishing the landscape. Mm -hmm. And trees, again, have an embodied energy. They also provide shading. Some of the uh, most porous neighborhoods in our city have not enough trees. Um, and as a result, are some of the poorest neighborhoods are also some of the hottest neighborhoods in the summer. Mm-hmm. So the, there's that in environmental perspective and the perspective of human health from, you know, trees cleaning the environment and, th and things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I think we've covered most of the questions I had, but there's one that I'm fascinated by because uh, I've come across this idea in various forms recently. Um, there's this idea out there that Uh, architecture has become disposable in large part, and I'm not going to say the only reason, that's the only reason, but in large part because um, of the way it's financed and the access to easy credit or easy, it's easy to borrow money. So most buildings have um, an amortization period of like 30 years or so, uh, which is one generation, but And so after that, they, they've been paid off and, and the owners have made their money back. And then some, um, they're uh, economically speaking, they're write-off, right? They're, they have no um, book value, so to speak. And so they're easily demolished because then you can rinse and repeat and do the same thing for the next 30 years. How much mm -hmm. do you think that has an actual impact on the durability of architecture? Because I've heard one economist specifically And, and made make the argument that uh, even 120 years ago, we, generally speaking, built buildings that were designed to last generations and generations. And then with the kind of new financing model and the uh, the access to easy credit that has gone by the wayside, what's your take on that? And is there something that can be done in, in the way buildings are financed to incentivize? Uh, owners, architects, and users to design buildings that last longer? That's, it's a, that's a very good question. And a question I'm not sure I can 
give you a complete answer to. I would say, I would, I would add that it's how we finance architecture and how technology, I think, has changed architecture. Mm-hmm. And it, I think that the two tied in together with globalization and how architecture today and, you know, when I, I say today, it's not that re- recent, you know, modernism also is, you know, a change in technology as well. It's changed architecture than, um, than say, you know, a hundred years ago from, you know, where we source our building materials mm-hmm. to the types of laborers and craft people that are required to build. Um, you can have large panels go up on a building where you need very few trades people or you don't need bricklayers at all. At all. Mm-hmm. Um, you can ship products from anywhere around the world. So you're not necessarily sourcing materials from that region or materials that are very durable in a, in a certain region. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I, I think that is, is a big, big perspective. You know, the, the question of capital is huge. Um, it shapes the city. Mortgage rates shape the city. Mm-hmm. Access to money can shape the size of the house people build. Generally, in my perspective, working with clients is people always want more. Yeah. Um, but they're not always and, ready to pay for it, right? And, you know, the the system of borrowing before you can afford to pay it kind mm-hmm. of entices that even more. So if you pictured like any given project mm-hmm. in your head and you 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 would design it say for a thir- minimum 30 years lifespan mm-hmm. lifespan and then you design the exact same project to last 150 years 150 years how much more do you think it would cost i know it's hard to throw that, numbers like that but would it be significantly more expensive? i would say all our projects we aim to go beyond 30 years um but even 50 years might be is short in the grand scheme of things even 100 years is is relatively short when you, th- you think of the history of the world. I think one thing that's changing that is the environmental performance perspectives, mm-hmm. um, energy costs, mm-hmm. that and certain standards, so like the Toronto Green Standards, uh, forcing or net zero, things like Passive House, um, as more municipalities and authorities having jurisdiction require higher standards, the more likely we're going to see better, higher quality architecture from an energy perspective. And I, but I also think from a detailing perspective and I think even from an aesthetic perspective. So you do, you do think those standards are actually pushing the quality of the architecture itself beyond just the, the, the energy performance? It has the potential to, mm-hmm. I, I think, to clarify. It, yeah. There's certainly bad green buildings from both a beauty perspective, mm-hmm. but also in how they make people feel. Mm-hmm. So it can perform well, but it's ugly. Or it can perform well and... It's not feel, comfortable. It's not comfortable. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, 
I like to hope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hope is what drives humanity mm -hmm. and drives progress. So I'm, I'm with you. It's, yeah. it's good to hope, but it's also important to keep in mind what are all, what are the um, what the uh, incentives and and kind of rules you have to play by to to accomplish that are because mm -hmm. it's it's going to help move things forward. Um, I think we've covered quite a bit of ground and uh, I don't have any more questions for you, but are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with the audience with regards to all the things we've discussed today? And I know we've covered a lot of things. So. We did. It was fun. Not really. I don't have any specific questions. I just think, like to say thanks for having me. Well, and it's, it's, this has been really great. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to have you and hopefully this is just the first of many conversations. Right. It's not all that often I get to spend additional time talking about architectural ideas like this. Well, you're welcome to do it anytime. Uh, as long as there's an inter interesting topic to talk about, I'm always happy to do those. All right. Well, thanks a lot. It's, it's been great. Okay. Thanks a lot. Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Until next time, ciao.